0: All right, my friends, if you got a Bible, you can start finding Jonah chapter three. It's uh, in the Old Testament towards the end. It's not a fail if you have to go to the table of content and find the page number. It's okay if you need to do that. Uh, We've been in the book of Jonah for the last couple of weeks. Today, we're gonna pick up in chapter three. And as I've been thinking about chapter three, I think it's funny how we read this book. And here's what I mean by that. I think if you pulled most of us in this room, we would say that the book of Jonah is obviously about Jonah, right? It's about Jonah's life and Jonah's story and Jonah's character and the lessons that Jonah either learns or maybe doesn't learn by the end of this story. And I'm not saying that that's totally wrong. It certainly talks about Jonah and it highlights the character of Jonah and the choices of Jonah and the lessons that Jonah could learn and probably doesn't learn in this story. But at the end of the day, the thing that I think we miss about this story is that it's first and foremost, actually about God's story. The book of Jonah, the book of Jonah helps give a context to the story of Jonah that makes sense of Jonah's life and Jonah's story. The context for Jonah's story is actually the story of the living God and the way in which that living God is working in history including in the life of Jonah to bring about redemption, life and forgiveness. This story is more about God than it is about Jonah. It's about his character. It's about the choices that God makes. It's about the plot that God is unfolding throughout time and through space. It's about the lessons that God invites people into in his mercy and in his willingness to forgive. And I think that this idea that God is the context for the story of Jonah is actually perhaps the linchpin if you're going to sit down with the Bible in which Jonah is just one of the 66 inspired sacred books that we have and make any sense of it. This story actually reminds you that those 66 books of the Bible, right? 66 books of the Bible that were written by around 40 different human authors through all kinds of different cultures and tons of different contexts, through three different languages over the course of almost 2,000 years, that all of that complexity and all of that diversity and all of those voices are actually telling one great central story. The Bible that God gave us is not first and foremost a roadmap to your life or my life. The Bible is about the story of God. And in the unfolding of that great story, that beautiful story, what happens is we're given a context for our stories. We're given a context for what it means to be a human being. Because part of what it means to be human, one of the things that separates us from animals is that we're creatures of story. We know that our story has a beginning, we know that our story has an end, we know that our story actually has deep significance, our choices matter. And we know that our story as it unfolds actually collides with other people's stories, right? And that collision that happens as we meet people, as we interact with people, as their lives affect our lives, that collision that takes place in our story is sometimes really beautiful and sometimes it's really messed up. And I think one of the great causes of despair in our culture, in our moments, is that we don't know the context of our story. We don't know how our story fits into the universe. We're curious and we're questioning, are we the author of our story? Like, is it all on my shoulders to tell a story with my life that really matters? Am I the hero of my story? Or maybe am I the villain of my story, right? Am I I caught up with fate and I don't really have choices that matter for this story? Or, Or am I the one that's crafting it out of nothing? And what happens in the book of Jonah that's so beautiful is instead of seeing the Bible as a roadmap to your life, God being in service of your story, God being an aid to your story if he's helpful for you to tell the story that you you wanna tell, or perhaps God being an obstacle to the story that you wanna tell, that you can just sort of throw away if the plot that he wants to unfold is not the plot that you want. In the book of Jonah, what we see is something way more beautiful than that. We see that the story of God is so big It's so huge. It's so full of redemption and life that it's actually God's story colliding with Jonah's story that brings significance, meaning, and beauty to this guy that's such a knucklehead. What happens happens in this story is that God wants to point out, he wants to point out who he is He wants to point out what he loves and what he thinks is beautiful. And the thing that's so beautiful about that in all 66 books of the Bible is that God in his self-disclosure, God, as he's pointing out what he's doing in history, he's actually not just doing it From the safety of heaven in an impersonal way and handing it to you so that you can make sense of it on your own, on your own terms. What God's actually doing in the Bible, including this great book that we're studying, is God is moving towards you and towards me so that we can have a better story, so that our stories can experience redemption and get folded into something beautiful, so that even the darkest parts of our story, right? And the book of Jonah records what had to be the darkest parts of his story. Arguing with God, furious at God because God is merciful to God's enemies. What happens in the book of Jonah is that God again and again is showing his willingness to invade history and invade lives and actually do it in a way where more beauty and more life can happen, not just now, but eternally. So, with that in mind, uh, I want to look at Jonah chapter three from the lens of God's story. What's it telling us about God? What's it telling us about his character and his choices and what he's doing in history that includes the stories that you and I are living in right now in this moment? So if you've got your Bible, Jonah chapter three, we're going to start reading in verse one, and we'll read all the way to the, to the end, verse 10. Here's what it says. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. And he called out yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God and they called for a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. And the word reached the king of Nineveh And he arose from his throne and he removed his robe and he covered himself with sackcloth and he sat in ashes and he issued a proclamation and he published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. There's three things in this text, I think, that highlight the story of God that become a rubric. If you're gonna understand the Bible, if you're gonna understand what Jesus is doing and the invitation of Jesus to your story that has the power to meet you in your story, in the ups and the downs and what's beautiful and what's ugly, it all starts with God. And what we see in this story is first and foremost that God has a mission. Mission doesn't start with Jonah, Mission doesn't start with missionaries or apostles or prophets. Mission doesn't start with church planters or pastors or good Christians trying to get it together or people trying to come up with 401c3s or nonprofits like mission resides in God himself. God is the first and the end of all mission. So look what happens again in verse one, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city and call out against it the message that I tell you. I love this. God sees the brokenness of Nineveh and God wants to do something about it. This goes back to the very beginning of sacred scripture that God creates the world perfect and without blemish. He creates human beings to live forever in harmony with God and harmony with one another and harmony with creation. And in an act of treason, we turn from God and we try to exclude him from the story. We want to try to tell a better story than the story God is telling. And in our rebellion, as we turn from God, we were cut off from the very source of life, From the very source of meaning and the entire cosmos in that moment of tragic rebellion falls into sin and it falls into death and decay is the result. And in the midst of that tragedy, man, death coming into creation and fracturing of relationship and violence between men and between women and all of the thousands of things that happen under the sun that are tragic and ugly in the midst of all that ugliness, God has a mission, he steps into the fray and he makes this beautiful promise that there's gonna be a seed born of woman and the seed born of woman is gonna set the world right. God has a mission from the very beginning and that mission is the story of the entire scripture. It's about how God through that seed, the seed of the woman, that's also the seed of Abraham is gonna bring blessing and beauty and harmony back to creation that seed is going to make all things new. And what happens in this story, what happens in the story is that we see in Jonah chapter 3 that it's not Jonah that comes up with the bright idea of preaching repentance to Nineveh. It's God's heart for Nineveh that wants to move towards his enemies to bring reconciliation and to bring restoration. Christopher Wright is a fantastic scholar. He wrote a beautiful book about the mission of God. Here's how he puts it. The whole, Bible renders, the whole Bible renders to us the story of God's mission through God's people and their engagement with God's world for the sake of the whole of God's creation. At the end of the day, mission starts and ends with God. And God is so committed to his mission. Listen to me. He's so committed to the beautiful work he wants to do on this planet that in Jonah chapter 3, he calls out to Jonah a second time and he sends him on a 900 mile journey to the wicked city of Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian empire. And over the course of that 900 mile journey, by the way, it was undertaken on foot. That's a long walk. In the midst of that 900 mile journey, what happens is this prophet Jonah crosses all kinds of borders and boundaries. He crosses cultural borders and boundaries. He crosses language boundaries, and he crosses religious boundaries, and he crosses political boundaries. He crosses economic boundaries. And as he's crossing these boundaries, what I want you to see and what I want you to feel is that Jonah was incredulous that God would care about his enemies because Jonah had forgotten that God is the one that has a mission. And the mission that God has from the very beginning the very beginning of his promises and prophecies to Israel that started with Abraham from the very beginning, God's mission was bigger than any one little ethnic group. It was bigger than any one city or any one tribe or any one tongue. Jonah had probably forgotten the beauty of God's scripture in places like the 67th Psalm where these words, Come to us about the heart of God for his mission. Here's what it says May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Say law, which means ponder. It goes on to say that your way, God, may be known on earth and your saving power among what? All the nations, all the nations, not just Israel, but all the nations. Let the peoples praise you. The peoples being a word for different tongues and tribes and ethnicities and backgrounds. Let all the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. God's mission is so big that he makes giant scandalous promises to his Old Testament people, the children of Israel. In places like Isaiah 19, he says scandalous things like this. Starting in verse 23, let me read it to you. In that day, There will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And Assyria will come into Egypt and Egypt into Assyria. And the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria. A blessing in the midst of the earth whom the Lord of hosts has blessed. Now listen to these words. Blessed be Egypt, my people and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Right, listen, if you were a Jewish person hearing these words, you would have been totally scandalized. Here's what God's saying. You know Egypt, the very nation that brought slavery for 400 years, that broke the backs of your ancestors? Egypt that worshiped false gods? Egypt, the wicked nation that God had to open up a serious can of whoop you know what on, right? Right? The hated Egypt is going to be my blessed people. They're going to be part of my inheritance just like Israel is. And Assyria, that's the capital or that's the, that's the empire of which Nineveh is the capital. The Assyrians were wicked. Everybody hated the Assyrians. The Assyrians were bloodthirsty and they worshiped all kinds of crazy dark pagan deities. They skin people alive. And here's what God tells Israel in this prophetic promise. There's a day coming where I'm so committed to my mission to actually bless all the earth with shalom, with harmony, with unity, with my very presence. There's a day coming where just as I called Israel by name, I'm going to call Assyria and even Egypt my people. So Jonah, listen, he crosses these boundaries and he's like, oh man, I don't know what God's doing. I just don't wanna end up in the belly of a fish again. I'm gonna obey. I don't see a plan B, but I don't wanna do this because I'm afraid God's gonna forgive these people. And as he crosses those barriers and those boundaries, here's what's happening. I hope in our hearts and minds, it's starting to make you think of a different prophet than Jonah. (laughs) Because what happens in the coming of Jesus is all of those barriers and all of those boundaries that Jonah crossed with a bad attitude, Jesus crossed infinitely more with the very heart of the Father. Jesus crossed from the culture of heaven to the culture of earth. Jesus left the city of God to enter into the city of man. Jesus crossed every boundary that is imaginable, the boundary between Jew and Gentile, the boundary between Greek and Roman, all the political boundaries, all the nationalistic boundaries, all of the very boundaries that have kept men and women apart from each other and apart from God because of our sin. Here's what Jesus does in his incarnation. He steps through all those boundaries. Why? Because he's the fulfillment of every mission promise that God made in the Old Testament. Listen, the point being, God is the one with a mission. See, listen, if you're a Christian today, it's not because you initiated this relationship with God. It's because God is so committed to his mission, he came after you. And the church of Jesus Christ, here's what's beautiful and rich. The church of Jesus Christ doesn't exist as an internally focused people that are hiding from the world. The church of Jesus Christ exists because God has a mission and he's carrying out that mission by saving people that were his enemies. And here's what's nuts. As he saves us and adds us to the church, he invites us into his story that actually gives meaning to our story. And his story is one of his mission in which through Jesus, through his cross, through his resurrection, through his ascension, all nations, all tribes, all tongues, even the evil Ninevites are invited into the family of God if they're willing to trust in Jesus and bow their knee to the true king. So listen, today, uh, here's the big idea. What do you get to know about God, the story of Jonah? Well, here's what you know. God is just ruthlessly ruthlessly, unshakably committed to his mission with every resource of the Godhead, with all the fullness that he is. Here's what he's saying. I'm going to finish what I started and the promise to bring about a new heaven and a new earth and to do away with sin and to do away with death and to invite people from every tribe and tongue into my family. God is so flipping committed to that that he actually sends his only begotten son to be the fulfillment, the power, and the life to make that mission happen. So listen, if you're here today, uh, a better story than trying to figure out your 401k as the ultimate purpose of your life, right? A better story than living for pleasure, a better story than just sort of going from vacation to vacation and in between, you're like in limbo, just trying to survive. A better story than worshiping God the gods of sex and the gods of money and the gods of family, a better story than trying to craft the perfect image so that you can fit in in a cool city, like a better story than that is that God comes near his enemies in Jesus, and he did that for you, and he's invited you with your time and your talent and your treasure and your career and your family to actually put a stake in the ground and say, listen, If the story of the universe is God's mission, then certainly that should inform the story that my life is about. Certainly, certainly that should inform what I think is beautiful, lasting, and important. So God has, he has a mission. And to accomplish that mission, God always has messengers. He has messengers. Jonah is one of those messengers. Uh, Pick up again our text in verse one. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message I tell you. So Jonah arose and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. I want to point out just a couple of things about God's messengers through two different angles. First, we have Jonah, the literal messenger in this story. And what we see about Jonah is that he's imperfect. And that's, uh, that's putting it as kindly as I possibly can. He's imperfect, but he's chosen to be a messenger nonetheless. His heart is messed up. There's pride and there's arrogance and his methodology is really messed up. It tells us in this text that Nineveh was a three days journey. How far does Jonah go into that great city? He only goes one third of the way. That's how wholehearted he was in his commitment to God's mission. He goes one third of the way into the story and then he brings an incomplete message. In the Hebrew, Jonah's sermon is just five words. It's five words and it doesn't mention God. It doesn't mention the hope of God. His five-word sermon can be summed up, in 40 days, you're all gonna die. It's an incomplete message. It's an incomplete mission. It's an incomplete man. And yet in the midst of all of Jonah's imperfections and all the ways in which Jonah falls short, God moves in a beautiful way. And he takes that human messenger who's frail and sinful and jacked up. And he actually brings revival and reformation to an entire city. In her uh, fantastic book, which is a commentary on Jonah, Rosemary Nixon writes about or she she mentions uh, she mentions this little inscription, a dedication in the beginning of a Japanese theologian's book. Uh, the Japanese theologian is Kasuki Koyama and his book is Mount Fuji and Mount Sinai. and in that dedication he has this line that's just crazy, it's beautiful. Here's what he says: to the memory of Of Herbert G. Brand, through whose preaching in broken Japanese, my grandfather was converted to Christ. I love that. Like it wasn't eloquent, it wasn't beautiful, it was broken Japanese. It probably sounded really ugly to the ear of a person that was raised speaking fluent Japanese, and yet nonetheless, in that broken Japanese, the life and the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ came to the ears of this person's ancestor and brought salvation to an entire family. Here's the point. Here's the point. What do you get to see about God's story is that God uses messengers, and one way to put it would be this, God really can draw straight lines with crooked sticks. And I get, man, like, if we're really honest about ourselves, there's all kinds of ways we're crooked and confused. Like there's all kinds of ways where we could look at our lives and say, man, God can never use me. I can never make an impact in the world. My past is too dark or evil or my present is too full of my weakness and my frailty or I keep struggling with these sins that I hate. I can't seem to get final victory over these things. like They keep coming back and owning me or man, I just didn't think that I would be at this place, at this stage of life. There's all kinds of ways that we can look at ourselves and say, man, I I have a divorce in my history or addiction in my history or mental illness in my history or, or I'm just an anxious person. And in those ways of looking at ourselves, what starts to happen is we elevate our ability and our power and our sovereignty over the story of what God's actually telling in scripture. And that's that God is so big. God is so glorious. God is so committed to his mission and his message that he actually uses frail, messed up human vessels to accomplish beautiful, eternal things. And we lose this, when in the Bible Belt, we think that the Bible is a compilation of God's greatest hits, heroes. Like, you lose that. If you think that the story of the Bible is, look at all these great heroes and try to be like them, you miss the fact that David, who's described as a man after God's own heart, also carried in him the darkness of lust and the corruption of power. And he abused his office and committed adultery and eventually murdered someone. And God still used him. You forget that Moses had murder in his background. You forget that Abraham, the father of faith, when he was in a jam and worried about the pagan people around him taking his wife because she was so beautiful, he just lies. He essentially throws his wife to the wolves. He's like, oh yeah, she's my sister. Like again and again and again, you see people throughout the Old Testament in their brokenness, God is honest about their frailty, and yet... There's this crazy dynamic at work where God's power is sufficient in weakness and God's grace actually works in sin. And that doesn't stop in the New Testament. Do you know the Apostle Peter? Right? Like a foundation stone of the church of Jesus, an apostle of the living God wrote scripture after becoming an apostle, post the resurrection of Jesus, the Apostle Peter goes back to his old racist ways And plays the coward, siding with the Judaizers over the Gentile Christians. You have guys like the Apostle Paul that wrestled all the time with insecurity. It's like if you really read Paul's letters, here's what you see Paul again and again wrestles with the haunting question Is my life actually gonna count? Is my life actually gonna count? The point being, friends, listen, like in the story of Jonah, here's what you see God's not looking for perfect people because they don't exist. God is looking for people that are willing to bow their knee and be formed by Jesus. What qualifies you, what qualifies you to be a Christian is not your moral track record. What qualifies you to be a Christian is your recognition that you need Jesus and his finished work. And what qualifies you to be used by Jesus in the world is not how smart you are, how talented you are at getting stuff done, or how great your track record is. What qualifies you to be used in the world is a willingness to say, all right, it's about Jesus. Here's my talent, here's my gifts, here's my story. Would you do something beautiful that I couldn't do with it? God is working in the life of Jonah, even though Jonah is messed up. And let me just say, man, just pause here for a second. I know the inner critic, right? There ain't a person in this room that knows the inner critic more than I know him. I know those voices, point out your failings your weakness your frailty that want fear to bench you to keep you from actually participating in the purposes of god in our city or loving your wife with all your heart mind soul and strength or laying down your life for something bigger than you i know those voices what this story is telling us is that when god chooses people to be his messengers his instruments of mercy. It's actually his power and his love and his life and light that he wants to shine through the cracks and the frailties of our humanity. And that's really good news if you're a human being. Now, it's not just about Jonah, though, because Jonah was one of the prophets. And God spoke through Jonah the prophet, and he spoke through all the Old Testament prophets. But here's what Hebrews 1 says. Listen to this. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Here's what's happening. God is using all these, all these crooked sticks in the Old Testament to make straight lines. He's prophesying through these frail prophets. But in the fullness of time, here's what happens: He actually sins someone greater than an angel someone greater than a prophet to not just be a messenger that tells people a message external to himself but to be both the messenger and the message par excellence simultaneously what god does in the sending of jesus is he actually he actually ensures that his missional message of reconciliation through the cross of Jesus will get to all the people that he's called according to his grace and his mercy. And what happens in the church that's so crazy is that the church becomes the messenger of Jesus. You and me become the messengers of Jesus because first and foremost, you have Jesus. (laughs) Like, here's what I mean by it. Like, we don't just have a message to tell people we've been given the messenger. Jesus, as the messenger of God's grace, the fullness of God, Jesus who came to perfectly reveal the glory of God and the heart of God through his cross and his resurrection, you and me don't just have a message to tell people about, we actually have been given Jesus. And the reason we have a message to tell people is because you actually have the messenger and in having the messenger, you're invited to actually share the message to tell people about the good news of Jesus. The church then becomes the product and the continuation of God's mission as proclaimers of the messenger and proclaimers of the message, telling people the good news of Jesus. So stop here for just a second. I get sharing the message of Jesus is freaky, is it not? Like there's just so much at stake, man, to tell people about Jesus and what are they going to think about you? Will they reject you? Is that inbounds, out of bounds? And where in the relationship do you share Jesus with your friends and neighbors and coworkers? Like, do you have to wait until your best friends are vacationing together before you share the gospel? Um, at what point are you going to have the awkward conversation? I get that. I get that it's scary. I get that it's hard. I get that it's weird. But here's the fuel for actually being messengers. It's actually seeing the excellence and the beauty of, of the capital N messenger. Like if you're not passionate about telling people about Jesus, it's because in some ways, in some ways, you're no longer in awe of the person and work of Jesus. Because when the person and work of Jesus captures you and you're like, oh man, he's the fulfillment of every prophecy. He's the Messiah that the old covenant was pointing to and longing for. He's the one that paid for sin through his cross. He's the one that defeated Death through his resurrection, He's the one that subdues all the powers and principalities of darkness and corruption through his throne. Jesus is absolutely flipping, amazing. When you're caught up in being in awe of Jesus, it doesn't become easy- peasy, but it becomes way easier to actually build your life around the transfer of this message from your mouth to the ears of the people that you do life with. My prayer for our church is that we would be so in awe of Jesus as the messenger par excellence, that we would be compelled to open up our mouths and share the message. And that leads us to the end of today. What is that message? If we want to get to know God in this story, you got to see that God's the one with a mission, and God's the one with a messenger, but God's also the one with the message. And the message is beautiful. Look at verse 2. God says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that i tell you that word message in the septuagint which is a it's a greek translation of the old testament that word message is translated kerygma kerygma and that's just a word that carries a lot of weight and meaning when the word message or kerygma is used it actually means it means something to be heralded or proclaimed and it's sort of the connotation of like a royal ambassador that's opening up his mouth and speaking the edicts and the dictation of the king that sent him. Are you tracking with me? This word charisma is not just sort of conversational, it's the language of proclamation, it's the language of decree. And what happens for Jonah is Jonah is sent to this evil city to actually carry this charisma, this heralding news to the city of Nineveh that points them to both the holiness and the mercy of the living God. The holiness and the mercy of the living God. Because here's the paradox that Western people choke on, right? The paradox is that God is so holy that he is the judge. And nobody likes to talk about that. Nobody likes the idea of judgment. But in God's holiness, here's what you see. He wants to cry out against Nineveh because sin is not just sort of an arbitrary list of Midwestern taboos. Sin is the power of rebellion that decreates everything that's beautiful and lasting. Sin is the force of decreation. Sin is anti-God who is life and light. And God in his holiness, he's looking at this city Nineveh and he can't just wink at it. He can't be like, oh, well, they had a hard upbringing. It's okay that they're completely breathing out sin and evil all the time continually. Like He can't just turn his back on that because he's committed in his very nature, in his very self, to what's life and what's light and what's beauty because that's who he is. And in his opposition to sin, you have this paradox because in his holiness, he's not gonna ignore Nineveh. He's not gonna wink at Nineveh. He's not gonna let Nineveh continue the spiral of decreation and completely absorb everything that's good in the world and destroy it. And yet the paradox is that on the other side of that mercy and not in contradiction to it, but connected to that holiness is the mercy of God in which he's the judge but he takes no pleasure in having to destroy. The paradox is like, he's holy and he has to oppose all these things that are so vile that they're gonna destroy everything good. And yet at the very same time, in the same breath, he's like, oh, that you would just come into the fold, Nineveh. I don't delight in you getting destroyed. I don't wanna drop like hailstones of destruction on you. I don't wanna end your story here. I want to invite you into something beautiful. And so here's what, Jonah's, here's what Jonah has to do. It's crazy. He has to go into Nineveh with this message, this charisma that he's to proclaim and herald that points to the holiness and mercy of God. That like, hey, Nineveh, you're not okay. You're not okay. And you're heading towards this moment of confrontation where the holiness and justice of God is gonna bear down on your rebellion and your evil that's decreating what's good in the world. And yet, and yet, in that very message, inherent is it in it, is God's willingness and desire that they would repent and turn to him. Because otherwise, God would have just smoked them, right? He wouldn't have sent a messenger. This is exactly what we see in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul talks about the very same charisma. Paul talks about the message that he was called to herald. And that message that Paul was called to herald is the gospel. And in the gospel of Jesus, here's what you have you have the holiness and you have the mercy of God fully and completely on display in Jesus. And it's news from the king that actually calls all human beings to account and to a response in light of that message. It's an invitation. It's an invitation to actually acknowledge, oh, wow, there is a king who's the judge, who's holy, who's pure. And there is such a thing as sin, which decreates what's beautiful, holy, and pure. And yet in the midst of the gospel message about Jesus, what you see is that God has made a way for full forgiveness to come by bearing in his own person The wrath and the judgment that we deserved. So what happens in the city of Nineveh is this beautiful picture of when people believe the kerygma or the message of Jesus. Look what takes place. I just want to highlight it quickly. Verse 6 of chapter 3. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne. He removed his robe and he covered himself with sackcloth and he sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and he published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows, maybe God will return and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And verse 10 tells us when God saw what they did, how they turned from our evil way and relented, God relented from the disaster that he said he would do them and he did not do it. Here's what's happening. It says that they believed the Kerygma. They believed this news, this heralding about the kingdom of the ultimate king of Nineveh who reigns in heaven. And as they believed, that belief is connected. It can't be divorced from a repentance in which they actually embodied in what the king does They get off of their thrones and they humble themselves before the throne of the mighty sovereign who actually owns Nineveh. They bow before him. What happens in that humbling and that repentance is the king gets off of his throne and that's a picture of all repentance everywhere for every human being. The message of the gospel is the heralded news that there is a king on the throne of the universe and he's a king of holiness and he's a king of mercy and you and me make terrible kings. To become a Christian, to become a Christian is to hear the news of Jesus and to do what the king of Nineveh did, to get off of the throne and to humble ourselves and to receive the lordship, the kingdom of this king. who's bringing a kingdom of peace and a kingdom that's eternal and a kingdom of hope into this world. So today as we wrap this up, listen. All throughout this story, God having the mission that He is the one that starts it, He's the one that finishes it. And God having the messenger, imperfect human messengers, and then ultimately His perfect messenger that embodies the message of reconciliation, Jesus. And this message, this charisma, this news that's heralded and told to people about the King and His kingdom, and the authority, and the holiness, and the beauty, and the finished work of Jesus on the cross. All of that has the power to actually give context to your story and context to my story so that we can stop like crazy, manic, (laughs) exhausted, anxious, self-authors. Get off of the throne of our life and actually receive the lordship of a God who wants to bring a kingdom of peace in us and through us. So today, as we wrap this up, here's my prayer. It's like, could you in this moment, if you're a follower of Jesus, could you in this moment come back to who the star of the story is? Could you come back to the beauty of the story that God's telling through your life? And if you're not a follower of Jesus, this is a moment where you're invited to hear this charisma, this news of what God has done through his son, Jesus, and that that son, Jesus, is not just a wandering Hebrew prophet. He's the embodiment. He's the perfect message of all that God cares about and all that God is. And the culmination of the life of Jesus led to this crazy moment where God's holiness and God's mercy are mingled on the cross, where he paid the price to invite you into the family of God. And you're invited. You're invited to do what the king of Nineveh did to say, hey, man, I'm king. I've got the authority over this kingdom, but my kingdom is actually pretty sad. It's not going well. And in stepping out of the throne, receive the sovereignty, the lordship of a king who actually does a better job ruling because he's the fit ruler.